0: Hello and welcome to The Rules of Investing. I'm your host, David Thornton. The Smorgan family is one of Australia's great wealth-building stories. The family emigrated from Ukraine in 1927, opening a kosher butcher shop in Carlton soon after. Through the 1930s, the family expanded into wholesale meat and canning industries. And by the time the decade was up, we were exporting meat and canned fruit goods to the United Kingdom. Victor Smorgan and the family established Smorgan Consolidated Industries in 1942, And this is when things really started to take off. In the 50s, the family added paper and packaging businesses to the repertoire, while the 80s saw the addition of a glass and plastic packaging company. But it was the steel industry where the Smorgan family displayed its appetite and aptitude for disruption. With Smorgan Steel Group going on to become the country's largest vertically integrated producer of steel and steel products. Today's interview is with Peter Edwards, CEO of Victor Smorgan Group. We discuss the Smorgan family's flair for disruption, the way family office invests and the multi-strat fund that has recently opened its doors to outside money. If you're an Apple podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to get notified whenever we post new content. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. Peter, thanks very much for joining us on the Rules of Investing. No, great to be on, David. Thank you. They say great things come from humble beginnings and it doesn't get much more humble than a kosher butcher shop in Carlton. For those who aren't familiar with it, take us through the Smorgan Group's genesis story and how it grew to be the Victor Smorgan Group of today.
1: I I guess the family story has been described many times and really described as a typical immigrant story uh, of families coming to Australia. Um, the family arrived from Donetsk in Ukraine, actually, in 1926. Um, and the story goes that, uh, in essence, uh, my great-grandfather was looking for things to do and ultimately went back to his roots of being a butcher for the local shtetl, uh, but, but doing it in Ligon Street rather than in Ukraine. Um I guess, as any immigrant family, you had fathers and uncles and mothers and cousins all working within an individual business, um, and and I guess our family was no different. Uh, and as as the younger generation grew, I guess they had they had more opportunity and higher ambition. Um, and and my grandfather used to tell me that when you come from nothing, it's easy to get get something uh, and continue. You don't have the fear of of expansion because you know where you came from. Um, certainly not true for our generation, um, but we still remember the stories in that respect. And, and ultimately, I think the family, um, I def- describe it as one of the original disruptors. Um, from an Australian market perspective, we, we took the opportunity to disrupt the industrial markets, uh, food through beef um, into paper. Uh, and then and then glass packaging plastics and then ultimately steel and, and in all of those endeavors um, there was effectively a monopoly or geopoly that the family was bringing either new technology or new processes sometimes just uh, changes in in um, I guess customer service that allowed uh, a second player to, to come into those markets and succeed um, in 1995, I guess we were the largest uh, private company in Australia. Uh, there was 22 working family members uh, and the family made a decision to divest of the assets, you know, I guess given the growth and breadth of a family after a 70-year period. Um, and that's where the Victor Smorgan Group started. Um, started with Victor and myself wondering, okay, the, the, the days of Smorgan Consolidated are over. Um, what are we going to do as the Victor Smorgon group?
0: So, what was your introduction to the family business when you were younger?
1: Well, when I was very young, I, I guess as family, we all started working in the meatworks. Um, we'd go out with our with our with our parents or grandparents or whomever it may be, and we'd work for the week. Um in, in amongst the blood and guts. Yeah, yeah. That was uh that well, depends. Um different people did different things depending on what they enjoyed. You know, so I guess some were in the drafting department, some were in the office, some were in the factory. Majority started in the factory. Uh, and it was very much a, a training ground for understanding the operations of the group as a whole. Um, so, my, I guess my background, I think I started at seven years old going out to the factory and playing around in the offal room, which was where all of the uh, internal organs of an animal <laughs> came down a chute and were required to be cleaned, packed. Um, you know, I, I think I've often said it, but you know, when we were 10 years old, we were given a knife and, uh, you were, you were seen as potentially responsible enough to be, you know, cutting the dregs off the, <laughs> off the brains and the kidneys and whatever it is that needed to be cleaned up before it was boxed. Um, and then further and further, depending on your interest. I mean, my, my interest sort of was continuing in the factory, work through the boning room. Um, and then ultimately into maintenance in the paper mill uh, and other areas because I, I was always interested in how the machines worked and and uh, I guess I was uh, certainly eager, eager to get into everything.
0: Were you treated differently by your co-workers because you were a smorgan?
1: I mean, the answer has to be yes. Um, and, you know, some positive and some negative. I don't think it was, you know, it's not... I don't feel like it's, um, it happened in a way that people often portray in terms of, you know, you saw, you were, you were favored or the like, um, you know, I think the family were, the the senior members of the family were very keen for the line managers to treat family kids as, as anyone else in the factory. Um, and so you had responsibilities and you had, you had things you had to achieve. Um, but you know, in saying that though, yeah, obviously everyone you know it took a while for people to just settle in. Um, and that and that happened really sort of throughout my career because because when I left school, I then went and did an apprenticeship in the steel mill um, and then worked through Smorgan Steel um, three years on the floor in the melt shop, rolling mill, wire mill. Uh, and then started to take on people's roles, when supervisors' roles, when they'd have a holiday or long service leave, you know, through to then managers' roles in that same respect, you know, to the point where you could take on small responsibility and management yourself, and then potentially expand that role as well. So that was uh, that was certainly my journey.
0: Did being in the trenches back then is that something you've an awareness you've carried with you? to the way you manage uh, businesses and the investments and assets? I think
1: so. I think so. You carry philosophies with you. You know, like uh, I always say, um, we, we early days of steel mill, there was only one measure and that was man hours per tonne, you know, from a from a factory methodology perspective. And, you know, it's looking at time and motion studies, looking at efficiencies, uh, understanding the differential in your, I guess, in your um, SKU set, in your product set. Um, and and I guess the, the the effect that had on management, um, you know, classic example was in this in Smorgan ARC, um, you were me- you were measured on tons, but some of the bar was twelve mil and some of the bar was fifty mil, and it all had the same length. So so you know, understanding that uh, that product mix, understanding all of that, is something that I've certainly carried through, or hopefully carried
0: through. Talking about things you've carried through, I've read Victor used to imbue you with a daily dose of business advice, which he referred to as the injection. (laughs) What are some examples that you carry with you to this day, uh, especially as it concerns the way Victor Morgan Group operate?
1: Positivity. Uh, I guess two things really. You know, the injection was usually about daily costings. Um, It's it's a bit harder than the in in sort of the more public equities market but in operating business and as we grew up um, we were required to do daily P for every operation. Um, it wasn't necessarily accounting PL but it was an understanding of your throughput your labor process um, you know your your major costs and if it was within five percent you were sort of happy because um, it was very much about um, immediacy something happened. What are we doing as a team to ensure that we do more of it, or we do less of it? And we need to be doing that in a timely basis. And so, I think we've very much carried that through, um, through, through the growth and and the maturation of the Victor Morgan Group.
0: A lot of our listeners might not be familiar with the way with the way a family office operates. At the broadest level, how does a family wealth office? Think about investing and managing money. What, what's your northern star?
1: Yeah, um, I, I guess the way we think about it is what's going to happen in the next generation. Um, so, you know, we we are very much eyes up looking for longer term opportunities. Um, probably not all that much different to everyone else but i guess you know we have a little bit more flexibility in terms of you know if we believe in something if we can see the direction of something and it's not necessarily showing up in the shorter term financials uh you know we i, I guess we do have the luxury of being able to carry that through um you know uh what northern star i mean i i i'm i'm, a, I'm a, a, Big believer in SCI, diversified portfolios, um, decision making processes that a family goes through, uh, consensus views. Um, You know, no one has a majority, just argue it out to find the right answer. Um, So, I mean, I guess that, and also probably more parallels around sovereign wealth funds. I mean, I I struggle for a parallel. You know, everything's similar and everything's different. Um, But Potentially, it is thinking about generational wealth, you know, akin to a sovereign wealth fund, I
0: would say. Does that generational time horizon inform your view of risk at all?
1: Well, it definitely informs our view on strategy. Um, On risk, not really. Really? Uh, other than the risk of um, you may underperform in in certain markets and you have to accept that given you given the thematics that you end up playing um, but but not so much i mean no one likes you know everyone wants high returns and no one wants to take any risk a family office is not really any different um, it's just i guess you can fall back on the longer term averages in times when people need explanations
0: victor Smorgan partners the Investment House within Victor Spon Group introduced the Global Multi-Strat Fund in 2019. Can you give us a bit of an elevator pitch for the fund? What is it? Uh, why now? And why open it up to external money as you have recently?
1: Uh, yes. Uh, so, so in essence, Victor Smorgan Partners was started because we started thinking about the generational succession of the group as it stands today. Um, we are a cohort of of mothers, fathers, and first cousins um, that is manageable to a degree um, because we've all grown up together. I guess when you start to get to a cohort of third cousins, traditionally that's been more difficult within a family business. Um, I guess we we weren't really thinking about about externalizing funds, but what we wanted to do was make ourselves peer credible so when we're reporting within the family, um, we could be benchmarked against people's other options outside of the family business. Um, are we a credible fund manager as a, you know, in direct comparison to other fund managers? Uh, so that was very much our driver to begin with. And it wasn't necessarily just the multi-strat fund. Uh, in fact, the first cab off the rank for us was our, our property portfolio, unitizing our property portfolio and allowing co-investment. Um, so, I mean, that's really a journey that we're on across the group is to, um, I guess, more formalize our structures, formalize our decision making um, and, and ensuring that a cohort of third cousins uh, has the right information, has the right benchmarks to be able to be making decisions about, you know, about the family's wealth and where it goes in the future.
0: The other day, I watched one of your investor briefings and I saw just an incredible graph uh, that showed the fund returning 40% per annum uh, between 2019 and 2022. That's incredible, astronomical return. Um, even in light of QE, COVID stimulus, free money, how did you generate those kind of returns?
1: Look, I guess we're focusing on thematics, you know, and, and I'm sure we'll talk more about it, but, but in essence, um, it's come, it's come from really attributions, comes from sort of four areas, and they're the general themes that we're playing today around resources. And that resources are split between effectively gold and decarbonization, uh, decarbonization resource assets, um, technology through automation, digital assets. You know they, they, they wax and wane, but given, given the appropriate buying periods. Um, you're able to, to deal with that volatility um, best ideas is is really just picking individual companies and best ideas was 30 percent of that overall return or attribution of that return um, and then markets in general again which was another sort of roughly 30 percent across capital markets funds of funds Dow dogs theories some you know some of the some of the thematics that have been closed to date um, so um, not from any individual area, I guess it was just more sticking with our sticking with our knitting and defining our themes, doing the work on those themes, and um, choosing the right times to be in and out.
0: How do you arrive at those themes, especially thematics that don't have a lot of historical data such as digital assets and and decarb
1: a lot of reading um so so i guess I guess we have a number of areas that we look to. Um, I guess the, fir- the first for us is what's going on in the group. What are we seeing within our proprietary businesses? You know, what are we struggling with? What are we succeeding in? How does it have effect on the market? And, you know, for example, one of the areas um, was in blockchain. And in the fruit and vegetable industry, there was a lot of, um, a lot of discussion, not necessarily action, about blockchain and traceability of food supplies. Uh, and how you could utilize that technology. So it, it was an interesting area for us. We we, we didn't, um, I don't think it had been applied even to date yet, but it just got us thinking about that area and the efficiencies that we could achieve. So in terms of a the thematic, um, we hadn't really been investors in uh, Web 2.0, if you will. Um, it, it was sort of an era that we missed. For example, I don't think we've ever owned an Amazon or a, or, or a Fang share. Yeah, maybe somewhere in one of the in one of the um, portfolio managers, but it's never been a key focus for us. So when we think about digitization as an example, and who will be the next disruptors in the space, we start to look for efficiencies. And when we thought about from our operating business perspective, you know, something that was being pitched to us in efficiencies, uh, we felt that that was very interesting. I guess other areas is is macroeconomic. Um, we do a lot of reading of, uh, we prefer independent, um, an analysis from parties that are not running funds. Um, you know, some may say they don't have skin in the game. Some may say they are truly independent. <laughs> uh, I guess we take the latter view if we're choosing the right ones. Um, and really across the board, looking for those opportunities and doing that reading to see what they throw up. Uh, You know the other one, I guess, is decarb. Decarb has been a relatively obvious one for us, and we we sort of roll back to our old learnings of supply and demand, Um, demand in a market, and particularly in an industrial market, um, the complications and intricacies of building a factory or 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 building an operating business that can actually go to supply those sorts of demand. Uh, And it has been said a lot in that space that that there is a shortfall. Um and so, you know, in, within the total resources space we've been looking at areas that have shortfall. Now we'll theme that as decarbonization, but really, you know, you could probably also theme it as capital markets in that everyone knows it's coming but no one's invested in it to date. So, taking a contrarian view within that within that theme. Um I guess other areas other areas um markets in general capital markets really we're really more around capital allocation on in the majority of, of um,
0: instances at the company level what metrics do the companies have to meet in order to find their way into the portfolio
1: so primarily free cash flow um, or or understanding where their earnings are coming from and 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 accepting that obviously growth as well um, but in those areas where they're growing they're also achieving free cash flow um you know we <laughs> coming from you know you asked the question before coming from a factory mentality mentality you know I, I always picture a portfolio like a building with machines in it and if you've got four machines in it and one of them isn't you're losing money on one machine you are going to prickly quite quickly rip that machine out and put something else in there that actually enhances you know enhances your profitability you know free cash flow of of that uh, operation um, for us equity portfolios are no different, um, they, you know, different timeframes, different drivers, but fundamentally, you know, we believe that a good company is a company that makes profit, um, and has the ability to distribute some of that profit.
0: The MultiStrat's biggest allocation is actually to other funds. What are those funds and what role do they play, uh, at the portfolio level? Yeah,
1: um it's it's I think we're 30 percent of the um, external funds. so so I guess when we think about our thematics, um we, we don't sit here saying we're you know we believe we're the best at everything. Um, so in essence, we tend to define a theme and then we look at at three ways of investing in that theme whether it be through direct operations, through owning equities directly, or through fund managers. Um, And so there are areas where, you know, Australian market in general, I mean, we are big believers in Australia and the strength in Australia, and particularly, you know, with current macroeconomic conditions, um, the ability for Australia to continue to be effectively a resource base, whether it be in commodities or agriculture, you know, to the world. Uh, I think we maintain a very good position um, in that respect. Um, does so, the
0: does the investment style and process of those funds have to match up with that of you know the rest of the fund and the way you guys pick your equities?
1: It doesn't. Um, it doesn't. But what it does have to do is stick to its strategy. I mean, generally, we are you know we're quite quite sticky in terms of the fund managers that we use. That what we tend to go away from them when they run style drift. Um, you know, I guess our view is we're choosing a fund man. You know, we're choosing a fund manager to invest in a theme that we don't have the internal, you know, internal um, bandwidth to deal with. And so, you know, we look at that fund manager and say, well, if we feel that they do, as long as they're sticking to their knitting, then if they get it wrong, I guess it's our it's our fault. We chose the wrong theme. Um, but if they get it wrong because they're running style drift um then our view is it's their fault <laughs> um so so there are areas within the portfolio and 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 one for example that we're looking at at the moment in emerging markets i mean we, we we're quite interested in emerging markets and the increase in the potential for gdp in some of those countries that are having um, um a rising working uh a working age population um to to get to get in depth in all of that in all of that understanding, I mean, we may get there one day, but certainly at the moment, we're out searching for, you know, credible fund managers in the space that we can allocate and start to learn from.
0: Can you name some of the fund managers you're with at the moment? Uh,
1: yes, uh, Regal, Centennial, um, Lanyon. So tend tend to be more the sort of. Uh, Principal controlled fund managers, um, principal and, and analyst controlled fund managers. Um, also, I guess Goering and Rosenswag um, from a from a uh, resources perspective. Um, Tosca Funds Management UK opportunities around Dow Dogs and um, banking services in Europe. So again, just depending on what on what the individual thematic is and what it is we're trying to achieve.
0: Going back to the individual assets, um, what's one of your highest conviction bets right now?
1: Um, gold is a high conviction bet at the moment for us. Um, you know, it's, um, it's one that, that drives a lot of emotion, positive and negative <laughs> as, as markets move um But for example, uh, red five is one of one of our higher conviction investments. Um, again, it's been kind of kicking us in the ass a little bit of late. Um, but we believe, again, we believe that that companies that have the ability to produce high levels of free cash flow that aren't being valued that way at the moment are, are worthwhile putting in the portfolio from a macroeconomic perspective. you know we do believe that gold, uh, particularly in Australian dollar terms, has maintained its buying power you know, through a lot of currency devaluation. Um, and that's an area that we want to be in. Uh, gold doesn't really have to move up. It just has to maintain its buying power from our, from our perspective. But we do believe it will move up. And where we are in those capital cycles has had all the large companies decentralising. And we're starting to see now I mean, you're seeing it with um, Newmont and Newcrest, this sort of centralization and the, and the um, consolidation of total tonnage or ounces in the gold's, in gold's uh, parlance.
0: Is gold something you like through the cycle or is it more of a portfolio hedge at the moment given where we are?
1: Yeah, it's more a portfolio hedge. I mean, really, we we got serious about gold in 2017 um we really we hadn't had an investment in there before um but we were just looking at sort of the macroeconomic environment um you know the the inverted brackets uh uh, money printing or or making capital available and i guess you know we'd all had a We'd all have a realization that all the times in history where this has happened before, gold has maintained its buying power for those invested in that asset class, uh, and so that for us was attractive from a family perspective, because um, you know obviously that's what we're looking to achieve. It's nice to make money, but it's um, it's nice to maintain money in a in a in an environment where you know where you really should be losing it.
0: <laughs> As we're moving through this monetary tightening cycle. Are there any other areas where you're looking to deploy capital?
1: Well, I think emerging markets because, you know, they haven't, they haven't been able to issue the sorts of capital that the Western world has issued. So their balance sheets seem to be cleaner. Um, you know, that, that certainly sort of bleeds into that, into that
0: thematic. Is there a country or region in particular?
1: You know, it's it's interesting at the moment. We're trying to define that because you know, what do you define as emerging markets? I mean, you know, traditionally, it's, I guess it's been China.
0: Um, they seem pretty yeah. emerged at this point.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I, in fact, I, I did read with interest. I think last week it fell off the definition of oh, actually, really? uh, yeah, the technical definition of an emerging market. Um, you know, I, I guess um, Thailand, um, Vietnam. South Korea, you know areas where they have a you know a large cohort of working age population that that, that is there and coming through um, through into sort of smaller markets, but that's definitely something we're investigating at the moment as to where do we really want to be playing within this space, and hopefully that will be informed by some very good fund managers that will either then spot an opportunity to to go and do it ourselves or just maintain that position with those people that are, that are across those markets on a day-to-day basis.
0: So if you do go into those markets, you know, I guess with emerging markets, there's always the problem of information and getting information. A company in Australia, you can go and do a site visit, you can get the full financial disclosures, but overseas, it can be a lot more opaque. Uh, does that, influence the way you look at these different geographies
1: yeah absolutely I mean in essence we you know you've got to choose a fund manager that's on the ground someone who can go and visit the companies that see the you know if it's consumer discretionary for example can understand the products within their market you know go to the supermarket um, these are these are some of the things that are often overlooked and something that we that we try and concentrate on.
0: So on the other hand, what are some positions you've been trimming?
1: It's been an interesting strategy for us because if we think about our group overall, um, it's not only liquid assets. So I guess what we've been doing more more recently within the total group is actually trimming our allocation to operating businesses. Um, and... and um, you may have seen in a paper, for example, uh, we were partners with the Simonetta family in a business called Perfection Fresh. Um, you know that was that was something for us that that we had we had contributed to the development. Uh, was it 14, 15, 16 years? Um, it's just interesting, you know, with the rise in secondaries and and potential allocations of secondaries across portfolios, that the prices are being pressured in that area and return expectations are reducing. So for us, we sort of look at it space and say, um, we're potentially not the natural strategic owner for that asset anymore. And there may, you know, there's others that that are better placed. And therefore, you know, we would choose to move on um, and reallocate. It's strategy drift to a certain degree. You know, people pay more when they're rolling into strategy drift. And you know, from an operational perspective, I guess you say, can I, you know, can I make up that differential? Can I? Can I? Uh, uh, like a, if you if you have the opportunity to sell at a ten times multiple, you know, can you make the difference that can drag that back in terms of earnings growth or efficiency growth within a shorter period of time, or are there more appropriate places to invest? Um, and so that's that's not to say that it's inappropriate for the purchaser because it mo- it meets their mandates and their thematics and strategies. Um, but yeah, we, we're, we're big believers in uh, the natural the, the natural strategic owner should be the owner of that business devoid of current shareholder you know concerns.
0: Can you give us any examples of a case where you have sold out too early or too late from an asset?
1: Ah oh, yes, plenty of cases. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How about a recent uh, one?
1: Um, look, I, I think it's fair to say that we, you know, uh, look, biodiesel was one of those, one of those. you know, we, you know, we looked at the opportunity for um, decarbonization and we looked at it from a, from a chemical perspective. And we were doing a lot of um, uh, used cooking oil collection from restaurants and quite a large business. We were doing about 40 million litres a year um of biodiesel to be blended with normal diesel um just didn't work simple as that you know for all of the talk of everyone saying they're moving in a particular direction i guess we we bumped our head on fleet managers who weren't paid to make a to make a change so that was a business that just didn't really have any legs in our in our view so uh, it was time for us to exit, and someone else, the purchaser of that business, effectively the assets of those businesses, uh, has moved on to greater things. But they're following their strategy, not not the legacy strategy that we were trying to implement. Um, so you know, look, I think I think in the end, where you know, if we think about coming back to the to the multi to the um, global multi strat fund, you know, uh, our performance has come from about sixty five percent right decisions and 35% wrong decisions, and hopefully we're getting the right decisions twice as good as we're suffering on the wrong decisions. So, and
0: hopefully you've got more weight in the right decisions.
1: Yes, yes. So, you know, it, 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 I couldn't sit here and say, you know, we never get anything wrong. Um, you know, I wouldn't say that we're constantly hitting things out of the ballpark. I mean, really, we're going for the averages and, and eking out returns based on, you know, where we think the value is in those companies.
0: Peter, this has been a great chat. Thank you so much for coming on The Rules of Investing.
1: Thank you very much.
0: That's it for today's episode. Hope you've come away with a better understanding of the way a family office run and invest. For more daily content like this, be sure to sign up to livewiremarkets.com. See you next time.